Father, we thank you this morning as we celebrate the blood of Christ, which has ransomed our souls and redeemed us, called us forth unto the praise of your great name. Has adopt, you have adopted us through this means into the family of God. You have restored us, regenerated our hearts, given us new life. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that we have every reason this morning to lift up our praises to you, even as we bow our hearts, Lord Jesus, before the authority and the great majesty of your holy word. I pray as we open the scriptures this day that we would see that Jesus, our King of Kings, is Alpha and Omega. From beginning to end, He is the foundation, the center, the authority, the meaning, the facilitator, Lord Jesus, of all these things that we so treasure as Your people this day. Lord, I pray that You would broaden the scope of our understanding to see through every course and every turn, at every turn of history and through the course of all that You have planned through time, Christ is the center. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the hope. Christ is the future, the Alpha and the Omega. We thank you, Lord, for the promises that we have, Lord, that are eternally secure through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are part of a long lineage, a multi-generational train of the faithful that reaches far back into history because of what you have accomplished all through time. We look forward, Lord Jesus, to each passing day as you reveal more to our hearts the glorious truths of our salvation. And we pray that you would take the opportunity of this day through your Spirit's use of the proclamation of your word to awaken our hearts to fresh understanding of, how, of what it means to be a child of God and who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. We thank you, God, for these moments. May they bring glory to you. And may we, Lord, be thoroughly equipped and furnished for every good work beyond this place to declare to a lost and dying world the only hope for salvation is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in His name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we have an introductory message to a study of the book of Genesis, which will be our, our main uh, series and text during the uh, normal Sundays, if you will, just to bring to your attention our preaching schedule. As you know, my, uh, the uh, first Sunday of each month, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, so we're coming to a close there. Next week, we'll be in Hebrews 13. encourage you to study ahead for that message. And then the second Sunday of the month, we cover a psalm, where uh, the Sunday following next then will be Psalm 81. And for the remainder of the Sundays of the month, We've been tackling, uh, of late, Nahum, and before that we did the book of Jonah, and our next uh, project will be the book of Genesis, preaching through the first book of the Bible. Why Genesis, you might ask? Uh, the title, or that question is also the title for this sermon, Why Genesis? And I hope to answer that question by other portions of Scripture this morning. Uh, in part, you could, or you could rephrase the question this way, why is the foundations or the beginning of the Bible, and more important than that, the beginning of history, or in as much as it's the beginning of the, of the Bible, beginning of history itself and its record, why is it important? Well, it's easy for us to forget the essential foundation and importance of the book of Genesis uh, for the believer. Many professing Christians, as evidence to this, many professing Christians today hold to wildly divergent 
views of the interpretation of the book of Genesis. And I submit this morning this is primarily because of so-called scientific findings to the contrary, contrary, that should be in quotes, scientific findings in quotes to the contrary of the apparent claims of Scripture or these apparent findings in contradiction to the claims of Scripture and also a certain cultural incredulity, a general sense of unbelief built on the crumbling foundation of claims of secularism uh, motivated by our quest to be our own God that we have in our day. These are some of the reasons why, I submit, there are such varying views, such a wide diversity on the importance and the interpretation of the origin of life itself, creation itself, you and me, God's plan of salvation, all the way from the book of Genesis, or beginning in the record, uh, as we have the record in the book of Genesis. In light of this confusion, it becomes important to revisit the first book of the Bible and to do so realizing the weight of greater Scripture itself, the weight that greater Scripture itself places on the creation account. There is testimony throughout the Scriptures of the centrality of the doctrine of creation to the rest of what Scripture has to say. Through the ages, cultures have been shaped by their own origin stories. They tell themselves, uh, this is where we began, this is our significance based upon our history, and so they find some sort of binding element and sort of meaning in this myth, if you will. Our conception of a material beginning is an essentially religious idea. These are some uh, things that we observe among cultures all throughout human history. Where we came from is an important question, and every culture answers that in some way. And the answer to that question is fundamentally religious. It has more to do than, it has more to do than just with an accounting of the matter. It has, uh, it has the question why attached to it. Why are we here? Where did we come from? If we trace our history back, how does this relate to who we are and therefore our meaning as a people? If we trace back through history, the cause for our existence as human beings, sooner or later, you meet a physical dead end, proving the ultimate answer to the why are we here question is a metaphorical or is a metaphysical, if you will, or a supernatural cause. This idea was illustrated to me uh, watching a comedian recently, an unbeliever, an unbeliever, a crass individual, a secular comic who's since fallen from grace. You may know who he is. I'm uh, not interested so much in his personality as I am this illustration. He said that uh, children's questions can be so confusing sometimes and can really tie you in a knot. And he was recounting his four or five, six-year-olds or something like that, asking them, you know, why, Daddy? Why is the sky blue? Uh, well, because light refracts, does this and that. And why does that happen? And uh, he, you know, with a little bit of um, humor along the way, he talked about how his kids would basically tie his knowledge in knots simply by asking the why question over and over and over again until he got to a point where physical explanations fell short. He no longer had a scientific or a, um, no longer a, a physics, an answer that we could learn from empirical study of matter, no longer a, an answer from physics to give. And at that point, he said, I was just reduced to abstractions 
because life is meaningless and no one knows where he came from anyway. And he was so frustrated that the final answer he gave was a sort of betrayed his philosophy or his religion, you could say. It was a postmodern answer of nihilism. Ultimately, his children forced him into a corner to admit that as far as he believed, there was no ultimate answer to the why question. We were here just because, just because atoms collided. And if you wanted an answer that transcended or that was bigger than the sum of this matter, you weren't going to find it from him. The, the, these, uh, uh, these children, uh, when they asked their dad the biggest questions, his wisdom failed them. Where could a man like this turn to answer these big questions that in the heart of a child uh, and oftentimes in the consciousness of the youngest among us are most important and remind us of the significance of, the, of life's biggest questions? Well, this comedian should have turned to where the only source of where true answers like this can be found indeed in the Word of God. The answer, therefore, to this inescapable question where did we come from? This, the answer to this question supplies cultural identity for a people, uniting them by a common purpose and cultural memory and shaping their collective worldview. So it begs the question, will any pagan or secular origin story serve the purpose uh, equally, serve this purpose equally? Ask yourself this question in our day and age, where did we come from? What about life's beginning? What is the most common answer? Well, something along the lines of spontaneous generation or evolution, taking the theory of Darwinian adaptation to absurd ends and thinking that life sprang into being out of nothing of its own accord and proceeded through a series of mutations and adaptations to eventually evolve to who we are today. What are the consequences of this origin story? for a society? Does it serve to bind them with a common cultural memory in a way that will advance them and will be beneficial to them? And more importantly, is this even true? Is it even close to the reality of where we came from? If it is not true, if it is false, then we build a culture, we build a collective identity on a crumbling foundation that will mark judgment, God's judgment for us for the future and will ultimately prove sandy soil, no place to construct a people, a collective, a nation, an identity, a society, or uh, anything else for that matter. The Word of God itself is far from neutral on the subject of origins. When we ask the question, will any old myth suffice to give us an identity, to give us a story bigger than ourselves that will supply meaning, hope for the future, and a purpose for our existence right now. Will any old myth suffice? The answer is absolutely not. Not the myth of Darwinian evolution, not the myth of the Greek pagans who thought they could conceive of these sort of hybrid man-gods that uh, their interactions create some sort of bigger story to center their, uh, their, uh, center their cultural identity around or whatever else might be the case. You look back among the ancients and you find all kinds of things trying to fill this void of where do we come from. The Word of God is far from neutral on this subject of origins. And in the book of Genesis, we find that the Word of God serves to proclaim the truth of beginnings for all mankind, while greater Scripture itself demonstrates 
time and again the necessity of getting Genesis right. That is the beginning, the foundations, where we come from, who we are, and to what do we owe our beginning. In preparation to study the book of Genesis, therefore, I would like us to turn to several of these passages today. And the first passage I would like us to turn to is Deuteronomy 31. Would you turn there in a moment? Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Deuteronomy 31. You can go ahead and stand if you found your place. And we'll begin reading the Scriptures in verse 29, Deuteronomy 31, uh, excuse me, verse 24 through 32, verse 6. Here we have the holy word of God. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of the assembly of Israel. This is Deuteronomy 32.1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you, and established you? This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the saints, to equip the church, to judge the importance of creation according to Scripture. I wonder if you caught the importance of the doctrine of creation to, uh, in Moses' instructions to the people of Israel in this text that we've just read. Notice verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you? who made you and established you? The conclusion or the question is rhetorical, and it's meant to communicate the following. The people are acting as if they had forgotten because they are making light of, putting out of their mind, not taking seriously the doctrine of creation, the fact that God was their father. He was responsible 
as their, prime, their progenitor, if you will, because they had left this thought out of their mind, because the doctrine of creation wasn't central to their thinking, they were repaying the Lord, as it were, with foolishness. They were not following Him, serving Him, honoring Him, seeking Him, and building their lives upon Him, but they were straying from the reality that they owed everything to the Lord who made them, created them, designed them uh, in the first place. And more than this, had called them out, redeemed them, and made them a people, established them, given them His Word, given them the prophet Moses, and set them aright according to His original intent. When they had forgotten the doctrine of creation... When they had left the authority of God's word, they became foolish and senseless and rebellious and wicked and idolatrous. And so we see in this example that according to Scripture, creation is foundational to faith and faithfulness toward God. That's our first major point this morning. According to Scripture, our view of creation is foundational to our faith and to our faithfulness toward God. And this is illustrated in Moses' account here. Several other uh, points this morning that we'll cover by touching upon other scriptures as well are the following. Our view of, of foundation, or our view of creation is foundational not only to our faith and faithfulness toward God, but also it is foundational to our worship and fear of God. Thirdly, it is foundational to our knowledge of Jesus Christ Himself. The doctrine of creation is foundational to our knowledge of Jesus. And finally, the doctrine of creation is foundational to the meaning of history. The Scriptures, these are just four points, among others I'm sure, where the Scripture itself illustrates, demonstrates, and shows, proclaims that the doctrine of creation is foundational to these, to the degree that our concept of creation is wrong and our appreciation for the doctrine of creation falls short of what the Word of God proclaims, to that degree we will have a lapse in faith and faithfulness toward God. Just like the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings had lost their perspective because they had forgotten, they had failed to value that they were sons and daughters of the Lord inasmuch as He was their Creator. Notice again Deuteronomy 29, 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. Notice the picture in this account and, how, and therefore, how important what Moses had written was to be to the central identity, the foundation of this society and these people. The Ark of the Covenant was the very seat of God's presence among them. It was the place of His habitation. It was the touchstone of fellowship with the Almighty. When the, blood of the, when the atoning blood of the Lamb was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, and by this picture, atonement was made for the sins of the people, figuratively speaking. God was pleased to dwell with them. We've discussed this many times in the course of our study of Scripture, how central this picture was to the fellowship of the people, to their reunion, their reconciliation, their, uh, and the mediation of God between Himself and His people. 
the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, that served the purpose to it served this purpose to show symbolically how essential uh, these elements were to the very fellowship of the people. So, with that in mind, we we can see how important, therefore, the word of God was. This book that Moses had finished writing, all the words of the law were to be placed right there uh, by the side of the Ark of the Covenant to be an ever-present fixed point of reference for the people as they move forward. What was this book of the law that Moses wrote? Who is the author of Genesis? Moses, of course, wrote the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, you know, re- referring to five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the very, but the very first book of the law Those five books referred to as the law is, of course, the book of Genesis. Yes, Moses himself opens the record of God's word to the people with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then proceeds what we will study in future weeks and months, God's record or the record of God's creation out of nothing, of all the cosmos, all the material world. The book of the law begins with the doctrine of creation. And Moses draws attention, therefore, to the most important foundation stones that were to bind this people's faith, to establish their identity, and to create for them a firm foundation upon which to understand the Lord and to understand themselves. And we see this in the context of these scriptures today. Moses the prophet, the recipient of God's holy word, who received by the inspiration, the direct God-breathed inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very foundational truths upon which the nation of Israel would be built, and indeed the foundational truths upon which the word of God is established from Genesis onward. Moses himself laments that to the degree the people lose contact with the doctrine of creation, with the true origin account of all of mankind, this is the degree that they will become disorganized, chaotic, fall apart, deserving of judgment, lose their moorings, become confused, and overrun with immorality, and eventually become destroyed. The rock, in contrast to this, the Lord, referred to first by Moses as the rock, the foundation, the pillar, the sure standing upon which their hope is built. His work is perfect. No other work can compare. All idols must be silenced, destroyed, disregarded. All impressions and uh, preferences of the people must be sacrificed, abandoned, confessed as sin in light of the rock, the foundation, the in the beginning truth that God created the heavens and the earth. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children. We read in verse 5, because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Why are they crooked and twisted? Because they had looked to other gods and they had explained their existence by other means. They had twisted the Word of God. They had put it out of the priority of their thinking. And thus, Moses writes again in verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is He not your Father, 
Who is responsible for your existence? Who is responsible for your identity? Who is the one that first breathed life into Adam and he became a living flesh? Who is the one that took the rib from his side and created a suitable helpmeet and commanded the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply? And from them, the entire, the seed of the earth, then spread abroad. Who is the one who preserved, as through the waters of judgment, ate that would reseed the population of the entire earth, Noah and his family, when all the world, so corrupt, deserved judgment. Who was it? Was it Dagon? Was it Astrath? Was it Nishrach? Was it, any, was it Baal? Was it any of these pagan deities? These imaginations of men, figments of their imagination, carved into wood and overlaid with gold? No. These are foolish and senseless representations. They are myths. They are nothing. If you try to organize yourself and the meaning of your existence and the foundation of your future upon them, then you repay the Lord with foolishness as a senseless, wicked, evil, idolatrous, idiotic, insane people. He, after all, is your Father. He has created you. He has made and established you. Therefore, it stands that our faith and our faithfulness towards God, just like the people of God of old, stands upon, hinges upon our view of creation. It is fundamental. Turn to the New Testament for further evidence of this, would you? Hebrews chapter 11, you're familiar with this text. As we've gone through Hebrews for some time in our communion Sunday study, in Hebrews 11, it's a famous chapter. It's sometimes called the hall of faith where All of these saints' examples are given all through the course of redemptive history of examples of great faith and confidence in the one true God. But before this record of these heroes of old are given, we have this preface, Hebrews 11.1. The very essence of faith is expounded. Now faith is the assurance of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The foundation of true, verifiable faith, the foundational premise that undergirded the faith of all the saints that are listed following, including Abel, Noah, Abraham, the great patriarchs of old, Moses, of whom we've read from Deuteronomy 29 and 30, or 30, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 31 and 32 of Rahab, of Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. There is one thing they all shared in common faith in the future Messiah and faith, of course, and faith that, that the universe itself was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. The very history of the one true faith all through the ages shares this conviction in common. Thus, according to Scripture, our view of creation is proven foundational by the Word of God itself through the words of Moses, the author of Hebrews, to our faith and faithfulness to God. Imagine how much different Abraham's faith would have been if he believed some goofy theory about where he came from. Abraham's account is given to us in verse 8. By faith he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Abraham, or with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The foundations of Abraham's faith go all the way back to his conviction of where he came from and God's purpose for him in the first place. Abraham was an exception to the indictment in Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Uh, again, Moses declares that you reward the, the Lord with this uh, shameful, with, with this uh, uh, shameful response. As we go back to uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, do you thus repay the Lord, <clears throat> you foolish and senseless people? So the foolish and senseless reward of the people is one that does not confess Him or have faith in Him as their father because they have lost the true conviction that He created them and established them in the first place. But in contradiction to this, Abraham and all the faithful, because they believed and understood that the universe was created by the Word of God, they could therefore proceed in faith. But the God who spoke the universe out of nothing into existence would create for them the foundations for a city that would not be shaken, whose designer and builder is God. God had created this entire known world out of nothing in the first place. Do you think, therefore, that He is not powerful enough to ransom for Himself a people and to reserve a glorious dwelling for them in the future? He certainly will. The Scriptures, again, teach us that our faith and faithfulness toward God is built upon the foundation of creation itself. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job is one of those particular examples in Scripture of when faith is put to a very extreme test. Job's faith is evidenced through the book, and although he wavers, ultimately he finds his footing on the rock, on the Lord Himself. What was the secret of Job's strong faith? We find it in the course... We find it in the course of the record of the book of Job. First of all, in introduction to his story, we find in verse 11 and 12 these words in a conversation between the devil and the Lord. But stretch out your hand. The Lord gives the devil permission to test Job in this way. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Excuse me, this is the language of Satan. Satan doubts that Job's faith will stand. He surmises that if he attacks Job's well-being, if he takes away the blessings that God has given him, then Job will curse him to his face. But the Lord said to Satan, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The incredible ordeal of Job's testing raises the question, what could possibly reinforce our souls sufficiently to stand firm under such overwhelming demonic onslaught. Uh, Some of us have been praying for friends, the Reed family come to mind, who even as we speak this morning, unless God intervenes in a miraculous way, are about to lose their four-year-old daughter to aggressive, malignant brain tumor to cancer. And I have often sat... Uh, praying with my wife in the wee hours of the night, talking to my wife, thinking, how in the world could we handle such a trial? 
we trust that for our friends, God's grace is sufficient. But for those of you that have given your life uh, to the parenting of children and know what it's like to see their first laugh and to smile with them as they learn their first word and to be there at the moment when they take their first step and to witness all of those beautiful joys of what it's like to raise a little child from when they're entirely helpless, an infant in your arms, all the way through the course of life to we hope and pray that God will send them according to their call and His way following Him and their vocation, their ministry, or otherwise. Those of you who relate to that can certainly uh, imagine that it would be impossible to bear the suffering of this little four-year-old who might be called out of your arms into, uh, to death in the near future as a result of this cancerous disease. And we imagine that situation is very tangible for us as, we, as we've been praying for our friends. And then we turn to a story like Job and that, that great uh, tragic grief is multiplied over and over again. This happened to Job with all of his children, his own health, and all of his well-being, his wealth was taken from him. And we ask ourselves, what would be a sufficient grace and sufficient means for us to endure that kind of of trial. And the answer comes when God Himself answers Job out of the whirlwind. Turn with me to Job 28. As you're turning there, this brings up the second point of our message today. According to Scripture, our view of creation is foundational first to our faith and faithfulness toward God, and secondly to our worship and fear of the Lord. Now, you won't get an answer any more clear than this. This is the voice of God Himself speaking to Job. God answers Job uh, with these, uh, did I say 28? It's Job 38. No, that wouldn't be it either. We'll find it. God uh, answers Job. I'm in the wrong book, so that partially explains it. God answers Job out of the whirlwind, and in so doing, he corrects Job's misgivings about his position, but he also, uh, he also gives him the foundation of his enduring hope. Job 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. The Lord is cross-examining Job. He is giving him a series of questions that will illustrate his authority and power, will adjust Job's perspective, will bring clarity to him, and will remind him of the rock underneath his feet, where he stands. And so it continues, Job 38.4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Continue. Verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness... Darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. 
and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Is it changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment? Or it is changed like clay under the seals, its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the a way of, to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? Let's, let's pause there. Recall the first words of Genesis as you're listening to this cross-examination of Job. In the beginning, again, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. Corresponding to this, there is a question that God offers Job. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? In other words, who on this earth comprehends the mysteries of light? Who is responsible for its generation in the first place? Who on this earth knows the mysteries of darkness? Who can separate the light from the darkness? Who can call by His spoken word alone the darkness night and declare the light day? Who can establish from the beginning the foundations of the earth? Where was Job? Where were you? Where were I? Where was the scientist of our age? Where was the paleontologist? Where was the geologist? Where was the Darwinist? Where was the theoretical physicist when God laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So you see, the doctrine of creation is absolutely foundational to our worship and fear of the Lord. God answers Job by pointing to his power over earth and sea, over darkness and light, over creation, the blooming fields, the flowering trees, the fruit-bearing plants that sustain men through the course of his days who commands the rain to fall, the storms to whip up, who has great reservoirs of snow ready to fall in the winter and great floods ready to rise in the summer. Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man. Before you existed, this world bloomed forth into newness of life. I think it was Matthew Henry who surmised that the reason God was created at the end of the, or the reason man, excuse me, was created, a little brief uh, heretical interlude there, we'll scratch that from the record. <laughs> the reason man was created at the end of the creation week was perhaps to uh, emphasize to him that he had nothing to do with it. It's an interesting way of looking at God's order of things in creation, is it not? Humbly, we find ourselves in the order of creation the very last thing that God creates. So when we look back at the record of Genesis, we can surely say this, we are not responsible for the spontaneous generation out of nothing for all that materially exists. Surely we had nothing to do with separating the light from the darkness. Surely we were not there when God created 
and the distinction between the land and the waters. When the trees dug down their roots in a moment, when they burst forth with seed and fruit, bearing future uh, fruit that would generate and cross-pollinate and supply us with everything that we need by this bountiful and bountiful harvest. Surely we are not responsible for it. But the question remains, who was? And the very foundation of our worship and fear of the Lord is recognizing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, is responsible for all the material world. We don't have time to cover all of the Lord's sovereign points to Job in the course of his cross-examination, but I encourage you to do so in your own time. All the way through chapter 38, all the way through chapter 39, God answers Job. Verse 39.1, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Is it any wonder or is it any surprise to us or it ought to uh, remind us of our smallness when we go to a place that is uh, undiscovered by man and we find in these recesses of the Congo or the furthest reaches of some unexplored rainforest or jungle, we find balanced, thriving, surviving ecosystems absolutely bursting with life. And then here we go in there with all of our pride and say, we must find a way to preserve these rainforests. Well, where were you when they thrived for thousands of years? You think you were responsible for those trees reaching up hundreds and hundreds of feet and the river teeming with life, overflowing with fish, and all these flowers giving glory to the Lord when no human being had seen them, perhaps for centuries? It's just the arrogance of man who then gets on some kind of fundraising campaign and says, we need to preserve this place. Oh, there certainly is a call for good stewardship of God's creation. And God has given us a charge to take dominion over the earth, to be sure. But that should never be confused with the, I, with the absolute truth that God is absolutely responsible for every flowering tree, for every creature that roams the earth. He was the one who created them. He is the one who sustains them. And this is what Job needed to remember. What could sustain Job through such darkness and trial? The Lord answers that, correction, that question directly by saying, Remember who created you and all things in the first place. Job answers the Lord in chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. Will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job's response, of course, or it correlates well, does it not, with Habakkuk 2.20, which we studied last week. God is in His holy temple, let all the earth be silent before Him. Recognizing the doctrine of creation, the fact that everything that exists we, uh, is owed to the Lord's sovereign hand, silences the mouth, it shuts up the naysayer, it bows man in humility, it gives him sufficient grace even to go through his trial because he knows that if God has designed this earth so magnificently, then surely God has designed his own life and has a purpose even in suffering. Thirdly, and perhaps finally this morning as our time is wearing thin, according to Scripture, our overview, our view of creation is 
foundational to our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, according to Scripture, our view of creation is foundational to our faith and faithfulness toward God, our worship and fear of God. And let's close this morning by considering how, according to Scripture, our view of creation is foundational to our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Turn to John 1, a familiar text this morning. But let us uh, perhaps see it in new eyes with the doctrine of creation in mind. John introduces Jesus Christ to us by going back to the beginning, does he not? John recognizes that the layout of Scripture in the words of Moses as he wrote the law under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a divine pattern. There's sovereign purpose in it. There's a reason that God begins with creation. John does the same in his gospel as he introduces Jesus Christ to us. He says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, Word. This we find in the course of his text is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. When God said, let there be light, this was by virtue of the presence of Christ calling into being by his sovereign power out of nothing all that is in the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see, the existence of light and darkness speak metaphorically to Christ. We see that the beginning of the earth itself speaks to the knowledge, the power, and the essence of who Christ is. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is the Word from the beginning. He is the power that is responsible for the generation of the earth. And therefore, we know as we continue to read the Gospels that He is the power that's responsible for the regeneration of the human heart. Just as Jesus demonstrated His power in creation to call out of nothing all that is in the material cosmos, so Jesus, by the power of His gospel, has the ability to call out of nothing, out of the deadness of sin, new life in our hearts through regeneration. So you see that John, the doctrine of creation, is essential to the understanding of the power of Jesus Christ. If, Jesus, if creation isn't as the Bible says it is, then there is grounds to question whether or not we can be saved. How can God save the human heart? How can God resurrect the dead if He is not responsible for life in the first place? It's a great question. You see, the tenuous foundation that we build if we begin to have conflicting ideas in our minds about who we are, where we came from, and the source and origin of this universe and this material world. We begin to take stones out of the foundation of our Christian faith and understanding and the absolute truth of what God has revealed through His infallible Word, and it comes at a high cost. The doctrine of God's salvation, in fact, and Christ Himself and the knowledge of Him, according to Scriptures, is built upon the fact that He was there creating by His Word light out of darkness, the world into existence, and everything, including man himself. He was, after all, John 1, 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone who's coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What power does Jesus Christ retain to grant the right for others to become children of God? Well, in part, his rights are secure in the fact that he created them in the first place. Due to the fact that he was in the beginning, the word, with God, in the beginning with God and responsible for the creation of all things, therefore, when he enters the world in his carnation, he has the right to ransom for himself a people, to grant, uh, to grant citizenship in the kingdom of God, to grant adoption to the children of God, who it says in verse 13, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Final reference point uh, in Scripture this morning that we'll turn to is in Colossians chapter 1. The knowledge of Jesus Christ itself hinges upon our understanding of creation. John 1, in John uh, chapter 1, as we've seen, John introduces the person and work of Jesus, beginning with creation, and Paul does something similar in the book of Colossians. Notice in verse 15, he is, speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Note when it says the firstborn over all creation, that doesn't mean that Christ himself was born of creation, but that is to say that he is the preeminent one. He is the sovereign. He is the one who has the authority over. He is the first among many, if you will. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice again that the doctrine of creation is foundational to our understanding of Jesus. Notice the foundation stones that Paul lays to understand who Christ is. First of all, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the image of the invisible God. He is in as much in this preeminent state as God, the firstborn of all creation, fully God and fully man. He is the one who is preeminent, who is responsible. He is the one who we look to. For by him, it goes on, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Because Christ created this entire earth, because this earth is evidence of his power and glory, therefore he retains right and rule over all thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. After all, all of them were created by his hand. If there is any entity, being, consciousness out there who had a claim to, who could say, I, I came into being by some other means, then you might find a competitor to Jesus Christ. But the fact is, that because nothing comes into being independent of Jesus Christ, He therefore is the sovereign. 
He is over and above and authority over, absolutely King of Kings, over all and over all other thrones, dominions, and rulers. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is responsible for creation in as much as He spoke it into being, and He holds it together by the word of His power. And then because of this, Paul continues to build his case, He is the head of the body, the church. Just, just as He is the beginning, He is responsible for all creation, He is the beginning, and He is responsible for the church itself. He is beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, even the gospel itself is built upon the doctrine of creation. Because Christ is sovereign, because He is creator, because He is Lord, He is preeminent over all things, even salvation itself. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is, is precious and powerful because of who He is. Because the blood that flowed forth from the veins of our Savior and Lord flowed forth from the very creator of this world, it is therefore powerful enough to reconcile you, filthy sinner, to, Christ, to the Lord, the holy God. Because Jesus Christ is responsible for all things, He is the exclusive way and means of salvation. In Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Because Christ is responsible for creation, He is deserving of our worship. Not only does He have the power to redeem, but He ought to compel our attention and our praise from now and forevermore. So you see, this is the way the Scriptures lay out the truth of who Christ is. And so we see this morning, according to Scripture, our view of creation is foundational to our faith and faithfulness toward God, our worship and fear of God, and our knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us look to Scriptures like this, passages such as the ones we've read today, to frame our understanding, to uh, give us a sense of the importance of the book of Genesis as we go through it in future weeks. I encourage you to do more study on your own time and also pray that the Lord would be pleased with our, uh, with our uh, preaching through the book of Genesis in coming weeks and that it would add to our faith a great encouragement that Jesus Christ is truly King of creation and King of redemption. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for these moments that we've had today to share in appreciating your glorious truth proclaimed from Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would reject all of the voices to the contrary in light of your powerful word today, realizing the, uh, the truth that is at stake in the, in the great doctrines of your Scripture, particularly that of creation. We thank you, Lord, that you are powerful and you've demonstrated this power in everything that you have made, and you've demonstrated your power in saving our very souls. You have the power of life and death. You can speak and by your word bring the non-existence into being, and you have done so by calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We are a new creation, a new generation, a regenerated being because of your power to save and your power to create. 
We thank you for these truths today, Lord. Write them upon our souls as we study your holy word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us in giving us this record of your character and also, Lord, in changing our hearts to receive it. Thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.